Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 12. Finally, after all these weeks, we return to the Gospel of John that we've been studying. I don't know if anyone's thought of how long it's been that we've been in the Gospel of John, but it was two years last Sunday. We're about halfway through. I don't know how long it's going to take for the rest, but uh, maybe a while. John chapter 12, we're going to uh, look today at verses 20 to 26, which is really only the first part of a longer section, but it's as much as we dare take this morning. Most of you don't ever stand up behind this pulpit, though this is kind of a second home to me. I feel pretty comfortable up here. I know that for some of you this would be a really frightening place to stand. We find that out when we ask people to read or do things sometimes. I don't have to stand up there, do I? And um, I, I wonder if you know, if, especially you who've never been up here, if you know what it says up here. Now, fastened to the surface right here is a little permanent um, bronze that looks like a plaque. Someone left me a message here. A very prominent place where I have to look at it Sunday after Sunday. They probably saw I was a little slow and maybe needed to see things often. I just wondered if you know what it says. No, it does not say time to wrap it up. I've got to watch it. I'll have post-it notes all over here next Sunday, but they've got to be bolted down or I don't read them, okay? Anybody know what it says? Some of you must know. Hank. Sure, I will see Jesus. That's what it says, exactly. Sir, I would see Jesus. Isn't that great? Someone in your name, I don't know who did it. Bruce Hempel might have done it. I don't, maybe some, someone here did it. But someone in your name, representing you, the people who have to sit Sunday after Sunday on the other side of this pulpit and take whatever comes, put me a message up here to remind me of what's really most important. And they've said, Preacher, what we really want this morning, what we really need this morning is we want to see Jesus. Don't get too far afield. I think that's great. That's my desire. You pray that that will always be my desire. I'll pray that it will continue to be your desire to see Jesus, and I'll try to be faithful to show him to you, even if it gets to the point you don't want to see anymore. We'll keep at it. That's what God wants us to do, is to see the glory of his Son, Jesus. The reason I make a point of that is not because there's some discussion about taking it off or anything, but because we come in our text this morning in John to the place where that comes from. You may or may not have known that that's a quotation from a scripture verse. And it's in our text this morning. Let's read it. John chapter 12, verse 20. I'll read down through verse 26. Now there were Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Here it is. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Well, Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor 
the one who serves me. Bruce Milne, who was a pastor in uh, Vancouver, I don't know if he still is, but he's written a great book on the Gospel of John that I use a lot. He says at the beginning of his study of this section and what we'll talk about next week too, that the larger section, he says, I quote, we arrive at one of the profoundest and most demanding sections of the entire gospel. There are depths here which defy all sounding. With a touch of humility, we must enter into this study, for there's stuff here we're not going to understand. It just goes beyond what we can comprehend this week and next week. This morning I'd like to share two truths with you. Here's the first one. If you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. If you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. The inquiry of the Greeks here in verse 22 or 21, and the admonition of this little plaque on the pulpit is, Sir, we would see Jesus. And the answer of our text, I believe, and my admonition to you this morning is if you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. Let me explain what happened here. In verses 20 to 22, it describes how some Greeks come to the disciples to ask, to make an appointment, sort of, to set up a meeting with their leader, with the Lord Jesus. I understand from the language specialist, and I don't consider myself a language specialist in Greek and Hebrew, but I understand that from the different words that are used here that it's clear that these Greeks were not just Greek-speaking Jews. There were a lot of those around, Jews that grew up in Greek cities and were really more attuned to the Greek culture than to the culture of Israel. But that's not who was here. These are Greeks. These are Gentiles, non-Jews. They came to Philip. It says, Philip who lived, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Interestingly, Philip has a Greek name. Now, Philip's a Jew, but he has a Greek name. And he lives in Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a little town that's the closest to the area called the Decapolis, the ten cities, kind of to the north and to the west, or I mean the east of, of the Sea of Galilee. There's this Greek area of the ten cities. And Bethsaida is one of the closest uh, Jewish towns was at that time, one of the closest Jewish towns. And so they probably thought, well, Philip, I mean, he's got a Greek name, maybe he's Greek, I don't know, and he lives kind of up by this Greek area. He would be a good one to talk to. Let's approach him and see if we can set up a meeting with Jesus. And indeed, Philip checked it out with his brother Andrew, and the two of them came to Jesus to set something up. You might just take note of the fact here that when people have questions about Jesus, that they'll talk to whoever is close by, whoever they feel like has some common ground with them. In other words, if somebody where you work is, uh, has some question about Jesus, has some question about what, it, what, he, who, what he's about, I promise you they're not going to call me. He's a, Bert's a pastor. He gets paid to say that stuff. We don't trust him. They're going to talk to you you live and work right around them. Just tell you that because you maybe need to be ready. It's not just me in the ministry, it's you in the ministry too. You know. so, so what do they want? 
And why? Well, they said we want to see Jesus. Now, actually, they probably had seen him, physically seen him lots of times. Jesus was not uh, 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 hiding in a closet. He was a very public figure. He was out in the marketplace. He was out in the middle of the crowd. He was out teaching. I'm sure they had seen him. In fact, they had probably just seen him in the temple because it said they came to celebrate the feast that was the, the Passover that was about to go. I mean, there were Gentiles who were God-fearing Gentiles. John doesn't tell us about it, but the other, uh, the other Gospels tell us that right at this time is where Jesus cleaned house in the temple. He had done that earlier that John tells us back in chapter 2, but here at the end of his ministry, Jesus came into the temple, and here are the money changers there changing the currency into the right shekels where they can offer their, their, uh, their, their, their offerings and selling the animals, the sheep and the, and the goats and the doves and all for their sacrifices. And, and Jesus had come in and he'd run them all out. He'd cleaned house. He'd thrown the tables over and, and caused quite a scene. Now, what part of the temple was he cleaning? He was cleaning what was called the court of the Gentiles. There was an area, the outside courtyard of the temple was designated as the court of the Gentiles. The, the Gentiles couldn't go into the holy places but the Gentiles who believed that Israel served the true God could come into this place and they could worship there. They could draw near to acknowledge that Israel's God is the true God, except that the high priest had filled up that area as a big marketplace and it was a place of commotion and trouble and haggling prices and Jesus cleaned out. This is a place of worship for the nation. Well, these Gentiles probably saw that. We don't know exactly what motivated them, but we knew that happened right here. And so they wanted to see Jesus. They probably wanted to see Jesus because they realized he's a champion of our interest. They want to talk to him about this. Well, well, well Jesus, what's your plan for the Gentiles? Could, could, could we be disciples too? Could you be our Messiah, not just Israel's Messiah? Somehow they wanted to know him. They wanted to go beyond just seeing him out there preaching somewhere. They wanted to personally have some contact with him. Down through the ages, that attraction to Jesus continues. For you see, Jesus is the champion of the outcast and the alien and the poor. He is one who's not afraid of the establishment. He's a man of vision, not just tradition. So all kinds of people are fascinated with Jesus and want to know more, like these Greeks did. And since you're the one that they're going to ask, maybe you need to be prepared to know what to tell somebody who's totally different than you doesn't know anything about your inside church circle, but once is fascinated with Jesus. So they come and they ask. The disciples bring the request to Jesus. But Jesus' response is startling. Look at verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, is that an answer? Is that, did Jesus hear the question? They asked for an appointment? 
doesn't seem like it. Is Jesus not really concerned about Gentiles after all? That's, that's a little disconcerting since we're all probably Gentiles here this morning. What is going on here? Well, I would suggest to you that that is an answer. It's not a direct answer. It's not a direct answer to these Greeks who come presenting their request. In fact, if you look through this whole section, you will never find a direct answer. But in what Jesus says, it does answer for us the, the, the place of these Gentiles and the place of what he's doing and how these things all come together. And, and the point that it makes for us, the answer for us is, if you want to see Jesus, you're going to have to go to the cross. Now let me explain kind of what is happening here. Jesus' whole ministry up to this time has been limited to the Jews. The Jews were God's Old Testament people, his covenant people. All of the promises of a Messiah were made to the Jews, not just willy-nilly to everybody out there somewhere, somehow, no. Made to these people. So, for example, when Jesus comes in contact with a Syrophoenician woman that lived up in the area of Tyre and Titan, a Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman, she's concerned for her daughter and asks Jesus, and what does he say? He says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Damn, that's kind of hard. That was Jesus' ministry. He never went outside of Israel. He didn't travel around the world preaching. He came as the Messiah to the Jews. And yet, all along there had been this, there was this other line of prophecies that somehow the Gentiles were going to get included. You may remember that on Christmas morning we talked about Simeon's prophecy and his Christmas surprises, and one of them was that this Messiah, the glory of Israel, would be the Savior of the whole world. In fact, Jesus himself made predictions like that. He says that someday people from the east and the west are going to come and they're going to sit down at the Lord's table with the sons of Abraham. Boy, that's radical kind of talk. So here you have these two lines of things. Jesus presenting himself as the Jewish Messiah, and all of these prophecies kind of floating around out there that say somehow, someway, someday, the Gentiles are going to have some part in this. And here in verse 23, when the, Jew, when the, the Greeks come with their request, present it to Jesus, something happens inside of Jesus that causes him to say, ah, this is the time. My hour is here. You remember all along when they've tried to seize Jesus throughout, we've seen it several times throughout the gospel, they couldn't take him. He would just somehow walk away. And we, we never understand quite how that is, but the comment was always something like, my hour hasn't come yet. It's always seemed to, seemed to refer to his dying, and it's like, nobody can take my life when it's time. When it's time, not before. But something about this request from the Jews, from the, I mean, from the Gentiles, these Greeks, these would-be Gentile disciples, triggers a realization in Jesus that this is the time. This is the hour. Bruce Milligan says, the request of the Greeks to see him is like an exploding fuse in the mind of Jesus. The hour has come. Again, remember Simeon's prophecy that we talked about on Christmas Day that 
You know, Mary and Joseph knew all the promises about Jesus. They knew he would be the Messiah, Abraham's son, David's son, the great king. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. But what they did not understand was that he came to save Gentiles too, and they did not understand that he came not just to set up this beautiful kingdom, but to cause a scandal by the cross. And here when the Greeks make their request, those prophecies made about Jesus when he was a tiny little baby, 40 days old, those prophecies suddenly all come together. Now's the time. Now's the Gentiles' time. Now's the time for the cross. This is the hour for which I came. As the great preacher G. Campbell Morgan once wrote, these Greeks, Jesus said in effect, these Greeks cannot see me now. There is only one way by which they may ever see me or know me or apprehend me, and that is through the hour that has now come. That is through the way of the cross. The only way. In other words, unless Jesus goes to the cross, the world can never know him. If you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. <coughs> Jesus gives a little illustration in verse 24 that seems to support that. There he talks about a grain of, a kernel of wheat that falls into the ground and dies and if it doesn't do that, it's just one little single kernel of wheat standing there. But when it falls into the ground and dies, it produces a crop. Now Jesus envisions a great harvest of people. That's a familiar picture of the kingdom of God, a great harvest being brought in. But how will that plentiful harvest grow? And Jesus says through this illustration, it will grow by the seed being planted by the seed, being buried in the ground and dying, so to speak. He's talking about his own life, dying, his own sacrifice on the cross. That's what will produce the promised blessing where the Gentiles can come and see him and know him, where the blessedness of the gospel goes to the ends of the world. That's what will, will produce that, is the dying of the one seed, Jesus. In case there's any question, that's what he means down in verses 32 and 33 that we'll look at as part of next week. Jesus says it clearly. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. In other words, Jesus says, when I am hung on a cross, then people will come. They'll come. When the seed dies, crop grow. In other words, if you want to see Jesus, you're going to have to see him on a cross. That's where salvation to Gentiles for everyone takes place. Now perhaps you're asking by now, what on earth does all this have to do with us? Yeah, we believe Jesus died on the cross. What are you just going on and on about this? Well, let me explain. This all happened 2,000 years ago, you know, almost. 1997 now, almost 2,000 years. But during those centuries, every conceivable spin has been put on Christianity. The faith has been continually reworked 
and redefined to fit various cultures where it's gone, to fit the current philosophies of the day, to fit local traditions, to fit personal preferences or political allegiances. So there's a constant danger all along and here, especially 2,000 years later, that we embrace Christianity and we find out that what we really what we really have here is not really what it was supposed to be at the beginning. It's some spin that somebody put on it. A little distorted. Something that reflects our world more than it reflects Jesus himself. Apostle Paul recognized this danger right away in the first century. He wrote about it in his epistle, 1 Corinthians, first letter to the church of Corinth. Already back then there was beginning to be a little, something was starting to be de-emphasized, toned down, omitted, neglected quite, just whispered, not really proclaimed anymore, like we're maybe embarrassed about this truth. Something in the church already was beginning to get toned down, and what was it? What were the local spin doctors doing to the faith? Changing it slightly? Making it a little more acceptable. How? By taking away the emphasis of Jesus crucified on a cross. People didn't like to hear that. The Apostle Paul explains, let me read a couple verses. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to them. Though to us it's the power of God. And he says in another place, the Jews demand miraculous signs. The Greeks look for wisdom. So if we're preaching Christ, what do we need to do? Well, we need to conjure up some miraculous signs. Or we need to make it sound real intellectual, right? He goes on. He says, we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. They want powerful signs. That looks weak. It's foolishness to the Gentile. They want intellectual superiority. This sounds like simpleton. But to those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, people in Corinth were willing to have Christianity and they were willing to have a religion that centered on Jesus. It just didn't like this emphasis on the cross all the time. It didn't like a Jesus who was executed like a criminal. Let's let's emphasize that Jesus is the king. Let's emphasize that Jesus is the, the Lord of truth, the Lord of life. Let's not emphasize that he was executed like a criminal. What I want you to see this morning is that that is still with us. Those kind of views are everywhere, and they're in the church. They're in the church now. All over this country, different places in the world. They're a danger in our own minds. You see, people love to talk about Jesus as the champion of social change. Jesus, the lover of justice, the peacemaker. Jesus, the Lord of all truth. Jesus, the 
the, the tender caregiver who cares for hurting people. Jesus, the one who brings out the unseen potential in the least of us. Well, that's pretty popular, those kind of discussions. And so Christianity, if we're not careful, very quickly begins to turn into a religion of human potential. A religion of the power of love. A religion of the mandate of brotherhood. The promise of morality and justice. The possibility of a whole new world of prosperity and peace. All in the name of following the teaching and example of Jesus. Oh, those views sound so powerful and so intellectually respectable. And it's heady stuff, and we say, wow, I like this. This is kind of a whole new look on the faith. I could get into this. Be careful. Bruce Milnes observes, for many in our day, the cross remains incomprehensible and repugnant. To believe that only through that blood-stained I didn't know what a gibbet was. I had to look it up. It's a stake, a forked stake that you hang the body on, publicly humiliating a body that's been hanged or executed. To believe that only through that blood-stained gibbet can the meaning of existence be discovered and the life for which we were made experienced in its fullness that is still widely dismissed as unacceptably narrow-minded, ethically dubious, intellectually naive, and religiously intolerant. Jesus, however, still points the way to glory by the narrow and only way of the cross. Oh, be careful before you get swept away by some updated, newfangled version of Christianity. The Apostle Paul, the great miracle working, the great intellectual thinking, personally chosen apostle of Christ says what? I am resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus crucified. Or in another place he says, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Christ. This morning I tell you plainly, if you would see Jesus, if you want to know him, if you want what he promises, if you find yourself attracted to him, to his kingdom, you will not find it in a Christianity of human potential. You will not find it in a Christ Christianity of political activism, political maneuvering, whether right wing or left wing. You will not find it in, 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 a, in an intellectual Christian elitism. You will not find it in a Christian social activism. If you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. You must embrace a faith that dwarfs your intellect. A faith that is repugnant to your sophistication. And offends you by its insistence that you are so 
desperately needy that someone had to be executed for you. You must embrace Jesus on a cross. That's the only valid gospel we have to present. Everything else is froth. God talk. Current fads. The inquiry was, sir, we would see Jesus. And our first point in response is, if you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. There's a second point I want to make, though, before we close. Second point. If you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. See, that sounds a lot like the first point. Well, not exactly. The first point was, if you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. The second point is, if you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. Jesus has much more to say about his crucifixion, the meaning and the significance of his impending death. We're going to talk about it all next week again. He has so much that we have to, can't even get through it all in one Sunday. But he does an interesting thing. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his death. And suddenly, in verse 25 and 26, he turns it around. He talks to them, to his disciples. Verse 24, he used that illustration about a seed falling to the ground and dying and producing a, frop, a crop. Talking about himself. And then he turns around and he applies that to his disciples before he goes on talking about himself. And in verse 25, he says, The man who loves his life will lose it. The man who hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And then the next verse, he goes right back to talking about his own personal experience going to the cross. Here in verse 25 and 26, in the middle of this whole discourse, Jesus gives to us one of the great basic principles of discipleship that's expounded throughout the Bible. The principle of life through death. Life through death. Bruce Mill says that's the law of the kingdom, this principle. Jesus sure says it enough times. In all the Gospels, again and again, we run into this kind of statement. One of them, let me just read you one in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Jesus is talking about his own death. Next verse. Then he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his very own soul. If you love your life, you'll lose it or destroy it. If you lose or reject or hate your life, you'll find it as eternal life. In other words, if you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. Not just Jesus, you must go to the cross. Just think about what that means a minute. What does it mean to love your life or to hate your life? Actually, unbeknownst to us English readers, there are two different words for life used here. One, the first one where it says, talks about loving your life, is the word suke, which is the word from which we get psyche, 
psychology, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's the life of our inner person, our ego, our, our personality that thinks and makes plans and decides and loves and hates and etc. That inner human life, that invisible part of us which is more real than just our body. The second word, zoe, is a word that refers to eternal life. It's that immortality that God gives his children. Different thing than just our inner human life. So here we're presented with a choice. Too much attention on this kind of life and you lose this kind of life. Too much attention on your human psyche, ego, and eternal life is lost, destroyed. You have to abandon this in order to pursue this. One writer, J.A. McClyman, I don't know him, he says that first word, tsuke, denotes the natural life man with all its appetites, desires, and affections, which seek their satisfaction irrespective of the will of God. The loving of that life is another name for the spirit of selfishness, which is unwilling to spend or be spent for any higher object than my self-enjoyment and self-aggrandizement. On the other hand, the hating of that life denotes that spirit of self-sacrifice, which counts nothing in this world too dear to be given up in obedience to the Lord. There's another New Testament scholar says, when a person denies himself, or to use another one of Jesus' metaphors, takes up his cross, he chooses not to pander to self-interest but at the deepest part of his being, he declines to make himself the focus of his interest and his perception. In other words, he dies to himself. That's what this text is saying. If you want to know Jesus, you must go to the cross. You must die to self like he did. Remember, that's what we read of Jesus. Though he had all the glory of heaven, it was his. He didn't grasp it and hold on to it. He laid it aside. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant, came in human flesh, and, and was obedient all the way to dying on a cross. That great passage in Philippians 2 is introduced by the words, let this same attitude be yours. This is everywhere in the scripture. It's one of the great paradoxes of the faith. It defies how our imagination how we can live by dying, how we can gain our lives by giving them away, how we can find ourselves by losing ourselves for God. But this is one of the unwavering basic principles of the faith. Jesus will not compromise this truth. It is everywhere in his word. So when the apostle Paul, for example, writes his fan club in Corinth and they're saying, Oh, Paul, we're your followers, boy. We're supporting you, and we're going to make your ministry the center of the church here. What does Paul say? He says, who's Paul? <laughs> Did Paul hang on a cross for you? I didn't hang on a cross. No. Jesus is the center. You see, there's Paul, not 
even taking up the opportunity to pursue his own ambition, laying it aside. Another example, when Peter, the apostle Peter, writes to people who are suffering, struggling, being persecuted, what does he say? You don't have to put up with that. You need to sue those people. He says, why do you think something strange is happening to you? This is your calling. Jesus went to the cross. And he gave you an example of how you're to live. You just make sure if you suffer, you don't suffer for doing wrong, but you're suffering for doing right. Here's Peter setting forth a radically different view of life. Radically different expectation. Life is not for pleasure and comfort and self-fulfillment. It's for service. It's for faithfulness. Even when it hurts. Even when it's not fair. Even when they kill me. They kill him. If you want to see Jesus, you go to the cross. So what does that mean for us? Here we live, 1997, 2,000 years later. Folks, we live in the midst of a self-centered, personal rights, me first kind of world. Even worse, we live in the midst of consumer Christianity in the church. The attitude, the prevailing attitude in the church is not what resources do I have? I will give everything I have to serve Christ. The prevailing attitude in the church is that God sets a big table, a big smorgasbord, and he has his blessings here, and he has the blessing of joy, and the blessing of happiness, and the blessing of wealth, and the blessing of comfort, and we kind of come and pick and choose which blessings we want. And, and, and God says, well, here's some missionary service. I don't like that. I don't, I don't have any taste for that. I'd rather have some joy. Give me another helping of that. Consumer Christianity. Pick and choose what I like, what fulfills me, what satisfies my heart, and the rest of it, throw it out. I don't care. Somebody else can have it. Here Jesus is calling us to a radical rejection of both the me-first attitude of the world and the consumer Christianity that's in the church. Paint one more picture of what we're talking about. The picture Jesus uses in verse 24. Here he uses the metaphor of a seed that has to fall into the ground and die for the crop to be produced. And then he goes and warns that those who love their life will lose it. Those who love their life will destroy it. That's what it literally says. Let's talk about that a minute. We've seen some terrible famines, maybe on television you see on the news reports, Ethiopia, a few years back, Somalia, the whole area of the Sahara, people dying of starvation. You know when famine really gets destructive to a whole society? You know when that happens? It's not when the farmers have a bad year. All farmers everywhere have a bad year. Sometimes a couple years. That doesn't cause long-term famine that destroys a whole people. Now, you know when the famine really gets destructive? 
When people get so tired and hungry, they get so tired of not having what they need, not having what they want, of having endured this pain and this trouble, that they begin to eat the seed. Then there's no hope for the future. Oh, it's such a practical solution. Why should we go hungry? Why should we be in pain? Why should we endure any longer? We've got this whole bunch of seed here. We could eat it and have our tummies fall. That seems so right. But the minute you do it, you've destroyed the future. I think Jesus is saying that our commitment to ourselves, to today's comfort, to this life is like eating up the seed that could have brought eternal harvest for him. The more we do it, the more we destroy our own lives, our own souls. It's only when we plant our lives, die to self, invest them in the Lord, concerned. Give them away. Even though it looks like we're wasting what we could have used. It's only then when we die to our self-interest in favor of his interest that we're planting for the future. Oh, but the consumer Christianity mentality all around us says, well, you don't have to do that. I mean, you've got to take care of yourself first. I mean, you, you can't help anybody else unless you help yourself, you know. You need that first. If there's any left over, give it to somebody else. Hey, the Lord wants you happy and comfortable and healthy. Just enjoy your life while you have it. Don't worry about all that other things that need to be done. The more we listen, the more we eat the seed. Eat the seed. I just ask you this morning before we close, if your life and your energy and your time, your moments, your hours, your days, your weeks, your resources, your dollars, your car, your house, all those things, if they're seed, what are you doing with that seed? Are you planting it? Letting it die? So that it might grow for eternal prosperity? Or are you saying, hey, I've got all this grain. Let's have a party. We grind it up and make cake for everyone. Which is it? Are you faithfully farming with this seed? Though it means you probably have to live pretty frugally because you can't plant it all and eat it at the same time. Or are you being a Christian consumer? Eating up your time. Eating up your resources. Eating up your energy. So that you be more self-fulfilled. So that you have more fun. So you be more comfortable. See, that's what Jesus means when he talks about dying to self. Hating our lives. That's what I mean when I say if you want to see Jesus. If you want to serve him. If you would know the Father's pleasure. You must go to the cross. 
or as George Matheson wrote it in his familiar hymn, O cross that lifts up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. Listen to this line. I lay in the dust life's glory. Dead. I lay my life's glory in the dust. Dead. From that ground, there blossomed red life that will be endless. what Jesus is saying here. You've told me through this little plaque that you want me to show you Jesus. And so I tell you as plainly as I know how today, if you would see Jesus, you must go to the cross. Or you will hear his name attached to all kinds of Christian marketing schemes and all kinds of ethical system and all kinds of political activities and all kinds of intellectual speculism and all uh, speculation and all kinds of social agendas. You'll hear his name attached to that. But you will know him. You will understand his plan. You will see him as he is only when you see him on the cross because that's what we're going to see next week that is his crowning glory the cross and furthermore I tell you plainly if you would see Jesus you've got to go to the cross too oh millions of people call themselves Christians they claim the authority of the Bible and they belong to churches everywhere and their Christianity is about getting richer and more comfortable and having it all and rejoicing and having a great praise service because we got it all, man. We are feeling good. But the road to true discipleship is the road of self-denial and service. The daily practice of dying to ourselves in order to live to God. It's the way of the cross. That's the road that lives to re- leads to resurrection and blessedness. And so Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross every day and follow me. That demand has not changed. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, though, oh Lord, it makes us uncomfortable. Give us the spiritual discernment to cut through all the garbage and to see the truth and to cling to the truth and to not be uh, moved to one side or the other but see the gospel of your grace poured out on the cross as the central truth of the faith. And then, Lord, help us to live with that as the central truth of our lives. This daily exercise of not what I want, but what you want. 
But even when we want something so bad that it, we can taste it, and our hearts long and will not take no for an answer of even their saying, I will die. Here's my life, Lord. I'll do what you say. Lord, we're not there yet. Thank you for your great grace to us that forgives us and renews us. Lord, help us to see where it is that you're taking us. That we might, with all of our hearts, follow. In Jesus' name, amen.